You know, as we were worshiping, I was thinking about the Bible reading plan that I've been doing this year and how it's it's had me in the book of Jeremiah and then Lamentations and now in the book of Ezekiel. And, and part of those three books is God revealing to those prophets that there is an army that's going to come and conquer Jerusalem. And, and part of the the story that God tells to prepare his people is that they're going to lay siege to the city and, and how they're going to begin to starve. And the text talks about how they will begin to ration their food because there's a limited supply. And as we were singing this song, I thought to myself that for so many of us, that's where our challenges trace back to, is that we treat God like he's a limited supply. And we're rationing him to ourselves because we only spend enough time in the Bible to keep a spiritual heartbeat. We only gather at church just enough to keep a spiritual heartbeat. We only pursue him in worship just enough to keep a spiritual heartbeat. We, we approach our spiritual life as if God is a limited supply. And, and what I felt inspired to share with you coming out of this worship is that, that you want to see God as an unlimited supply and you need to see your need for Him to be without measure. So that you approach God spending time in the Bible, in worship, in prayer, in gathering, the pathways, which we're going to talk about some in tonight's message, you need to approach them like you need as much of that as you can possibly gather. You live your life spiritually as if you're under siege, but God's saying, no, there's more than enough for me, for all of you, for every area of your life. I pray, Father, for the people that are here tonight that are living a spiritually rationed life. I pray that tonight they would find an appetite for your abundance. I pray that these moments that we've shared in worship isn't going to be enough to tide them over for two months before they come back. But just this week on their own, they're going to find a time to set aside to enter into a place of worship with you. Maybe there's some people here tonight that the normal routine for them is as we study your word together as a church family that it might not be that they hear anything from the Bible until they come back to church maybe in a couple of months. I pray, God, that they would stop rationing for prayer, for relationships, for all these life groups that are coming back, oh God. I pray that people would avail themselves to the abundance of who you are. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen, amen. I'm going to invite you to find your seat. Come on, you give up the worship team. So good. So good. Hey, I just want to mention a couple of things before I get started tonight, but before I do, I just want to make a reminder, we've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks, that if you're in here and you've got young ones that are with you, this is not going to be the sermon for your children tonight, so I would encourage you to take advantage of the child care, uh, or it could be that if you're visiting and you've got really little kids and you're not comfortable with the child care, uh, they might learn some words from Pastor Fred tonight that you're not prepared for them to know. So I'm just giving you fair warning. 
uh, in advance. So I just want to go back to the Legacy Weekend. I want to encourage you. I don't care what your plans are for that weekend. I'm, you need to change them and be here with us for that weekend, right? It's huge what's happening here. This property being gifted to this church, it's an historic moment. And we really believe that that weekend that we've set aside to gather, we're going to be doing some unique things with our leadership team that Friday night and then coming together with both campuses here on Saturday. We believe that it's, it's going to start something new in our church and, uh, and if you've been with us for any amount of time, uh, you can speak. There's, there's a vibrancy here that's always been here. There's, a, there's an excitement and enthusiasm that's always been a part of the culture of the City Life Church. But we believe that there's going to be something that God deposits in us that weekend that's going to prepare us for the impact that we're supposed to have. So I want to encourage you to be here. And if you're not here on time, you might not have a place to sit. So that's on you. So don't be rolling up at 515 that weekend like you do usually. Just saying. <laughs> Just saying, just saying. Hey, too, after church tonight, if you're interested, uh, there's some people who are going to be hanging out, just some summer fun uh, at Newport News Park. So if you did not bring a picnic lunch, then uh, you, what did I say? Deer yeah, Deer Park, not Newport News, Deer Park. So if you didn't bring food, just go through a drive-thru. Find a Popeye's if you can wait long enough. And, uh, or Chick-fil-A, since we go to church on Saturday, they're open. And, uh, but go through the drive-thru, pick up some food, and uh, hang out with your church family tonight. So, hey, my last thing I just want to mention, too, is that next Saturday, the, the first weekend of the month, uh, the elders really believe that we're supposed to continue in this. We did it all summer, but we feel like we're supposed to keep doing it for the rest of this year, and we'll keep praying about when we're supposed to stop if we are. Uh, but the first Saturdays of the month for us, uh, during communion, we've always done communion, uh, the Lord's Supper together as a church on the first uh, Saturday of the month. Uh, but we believe that we're supposed to have a clear call for people to make a vow of devotion to Christ during the communion moment, so that will continue to happen. Uh, and then also we'll do an abbreviated message, like a 10-minute exhortation uh, that is intended to inspire faith. And then all the time that would normally be given to the sermon, we'll go back into worship, and then we'll have like nine teams of people available to pray with you. And so already stories are continuing to come in about how God is moving uh, on behalf of people's lives. And so as that continues to happen for you, I pray that you will share that with us. But we're, we're saying that to you because that's a great Saturday to bring people you know. Even if they're not interested in church, if, if you know there's something in their life that, uh, that they're struggling with, then you bring them. And right, take, just take a chance on putting, putting them in an environment where people can pray with them and see what God might do. If you have people that you know, family members, co-workers, that have never made a vow and devotion to Christ, there's going to be a clear call to make a vow and devotion to Christ as part of that service every single week. So I trust that you'll take advantage of that. So. All right, let's talk about King David. We're, this is our last, uh, last sermon in our series, Eden. I've really enjoyed this series. I hope that it's, it's ministered to you as much as it has to me uh, in my study and in my sharing. But we've been looking back into the story of the creation, the story of the Garden of Eden, and we've been finding principles to live by even today. And so this wraps up our series. Every week is born to something. And so this week we're going to talk about born to enjoy. We're going to have a frank conversation, an in-depth teaching on human sexuality tonight as a church. I'm frustrated that the church has not been a vocal part of this conversation for far too long. Uh, I've, I do feel like there's a shift over the last several years where churches are, are willing to step back in uh, to culture 
uh, and re-engage in the conversation that they abdicated years ago. And so we're going to be doing that tonight as a church family. I want to start, though, I want to talk a little bit about King David. I, I, I want to just explore this story uh, momentarily for the teaching that it gives us, but also because it's going to set us up for where we're going to be headed for the rest of the message. So if you've got your your Bible, you can turn to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. While you're turning there, I just want to share this thought with you. Lust is not a sexual desire. Lust is a selfish desire that is born out of an unhealthy sexual appetite. Let me read again. Lust is not, a sex, is not sexual desire. Lust is a selfish desire that is born out of an unhealthy sexual appetite. Appetite. Father, I pray that as we dig into this sensitive conversation tonight, I pray that people are going to find liberty for some of them for the first time in their life. I pray tonight that people that came in here with confusion are going to find clarity for the first time in their life. I pray for people that are here whose parents did not have a sexual conversation with them, God, and, and, uh, and how that's been uh, continuing on for generations. I pray that they're going to be parents that are going to leave here tonight empowered and inspired with the confidence to do for their children what their parents didn't do for them. We pray, Father, that there's going to be a renewed sense of liberty that married couples are going to find together in their sexual relationship because of the truth that we find in your word. Come on, in Jesus' name, and everybody said. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 4 reads this way. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Reba. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And late one afternoon, after his midday rest, naps are biblical, David got out of bed, was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now you would think the text would then say, because this is King David, who gave us most of the Psalms. It's King David, who, who we've taught our children that he's a hero, and he most certainly is, right? The story of David and Goliath. You would think at this point, David would say, oh, she's married. And the story would end there, but it does not. It says, then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, you can keep reading it. We're not going to go all the way through it for the sake of time, but this story ends in incredible tragedy. It is a great reminder that momentary sin can send ripples of destruction through families for generations, but it is also an incredible story of restoration. It's an incredible story how people can make mistakes, go through a journey of repentance, and find restoration in their relationship with God and with their family. I want to just point out these three points, again, which are going to set up where we're headed. David makes three mistakes, as we're going to see. The first one is that David stayed, that David stayed. It's going to pop up on the screen here, which leads to isolation. If your life isn't immersed in relationships with other Christians, you are vulnerable to the temptation of lust. Personality needs to stop being permission giving in your life. For some of you, you, you struggle with the temptation in the realm of your sexuality is because you live a relationally isolated life. This idea that David did not go with his troops is a prophetic picture of a person that isolates when they should be engaging in relationship. And whenever you isolate instead of engaging in relationships, you're vulnerable, especially to sexual temptation. 
Now, I get it. If you're a naturally introverted person, I'm a naturally introverted person. By the time that Saturday night ends, i got to have time by myself to rejuvenate and reconnect. But I know that I can't use my personality as permission to live an isolated life. Many of you, you struggle with shyness. You struggle with being reserved. And when I say struggle, it's because you are putting on yourself this expectation to change. And what I would say, don't see it as a struggle. You need to celebrate who God made you to be. There's this idea of our personalities and our comfort levels. This is the uniqueness of who we are. So we've got to stop seeing it as a struggle, seeing as we were created by God. But just because we were created by God, especially our personalities, it was not given to us to be permission to withdraw and isolate from relationships. Don't withdraw. The second mistake he made is that he stared. David stayed, and then we see that David stared. Today's rooftop is technology. If you don't have a plan to limit your access to everything you could see, you are vulnerable to the temptation of lust. Pride needs to stop being permission giving in your life. It needs to stop. David stayed, and then in his isolation, he stared. He went out and availed himself. Now, He's on his rooftop. There's nothing wrong with that. And in that day and time, it was common for people to bathe on their roof. But, but, but you can see that there was a moment where David was just looking around, and all of a sudden, he catches a glimpse of something he's not supposed to see. Now, you can't control what your eyes might pick up, but you can control how long you stare at it. And David began to engage in that image that he was looking at beyond what he should have. And because he stayed, because he was isolated, he began to stare And then what we see is that he had a sense of entitlement to have access to that woman. Now, technology gives you that same situation today. You might find yourself alone with your computer. You might find yourself with certain private search capacities on your phone. You might just find yourself walking through the mall. I remember when our kids were young, especially our boys, and we're walking through the mall, right? And every mall has a Victoria's Secrets. And we began to talk to our children, even at an early age. You have to decide where you're going to choose to look when you're in a public setting. If you're just looking around in innocence, how about just going on road trips? What's on billboards today? Like, what? Oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. Riding through town, different stores and novelty shops. It's out there. If you're just looking around innocently, you're not responsible for the, what you might pick up in your gaze, but you're responsible for how long you stare at it. you got to have a plan. How are you giving yourself limitations with your television, with your phone, with your computer, especially for men? Women are susceptible too, but especially men. There's all kinds of technology that's out there today and accountability relationships, software that's free that can limit your access. If, if you're not taking any steps to limit your access, then what I would say is that's pride and you're setting yourself up for failure. David stayed and David stared. And then what we see is that David sent entitlement. And this is going to set us up for the rest of the night. Sexual pleasure is not a right. It's a privilege. And that privilege doesn't even belong to me and it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to my spouse or my future spouse if I'm not married. And until you see your capacity for sexual pleasure as a responsibility to protect instead of a desire to satisfy, this is a game changer for some of you. You've got to see your sexual capacity as a responsibility to protect and not a desire to satisfy. 
you're vulnerable to the temptation of lust. Self-pity needs to stop being permission giving in your life. It's self-pity because you're, you're saying, I can't control how I feel. And that's true to some degree. But what we see is that David was responsible for the feelings that he now had because he isolated himself. And then all of a sudden, he's staring at things that he's not supposed to stare at. And then all of a sudden, he's aroused a part of him that had no business being aroused because of actions he took. You can't see yourself as a victim to your sexuality our sexuality is an incredible gift that God has given to us, and he expects us to have governance over it just like every other area of our lives. So for the rest of our time together, we're going to explore how we actually protect this responsibility that we're calling our sexual capacity. And I want to start by making the simple statement is that you were born to enjoy God created you with the capacity for sexual pleasure because sexual pleasure was God's idea and it's one of his great gifts to us. Until you begin to see your sexuality as a gift from God, you're not going to be inclined to submit to his plan for it. If you see your sexuality as some odd evolution of the human experience that entered into the world after Adam and Eve committed their first sin, then you will begin to talk yourself into a belief that you don't need to submit to God's plan because God doesn't understand. But as we're going to see in just a minute, that sexuality is God's idea. And when I realized that he created me to enjoy sexual pleasures within the context of his plan, I'm going to be more willing to submit to his limitations. Genesis 2, 23 to 25. At last, the man exclaimed, this is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. Verse 24, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. And now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. It's important that we read the story of creation, that we do not allow ourselves to be susceptible to this idea that Adam and Eve were naive. They weren't naive, they were innocent, and those are two different things. They were created as adults right from the beginning. Now, we've been talking about that, some of the, why that is in this series. But if we're not careful, we'll see them as adults because we understand the Bible says they were created as adults, but then we'll slip into this mindset and mentality is because they haven't been living very long, they were childish or naive. But that's nothing of what the Bible teaches us. Part of it is we know that even from last week, even as God began to give Adam this first job that he had, which was last week was about born to create, that you were created for a reason, to produce something, to be a productive, contributing member of society. If you have this image that, that Adam is this fully grown adult, but that he's childish and he's naming the animals, it's like he's, he's reading the children's book that you read to your child of him trying to figure out names and animal noises. But that's not what that moment's about. He was given the job, as we said last week, to become the first zoologist in history. He was a scientist. He was responsible for creating all the animal classifications to bring organizations and description to the entire animal kingdom. You're not giving that to a child. You're giving that responsibility to a thinking, reasoning, intelligent, fully matured human being. You have got to see Adam and Eve as innocent, yes, because they've never sinned, not yet. 
but they are not naive. You have to see that here in the text, it clearly demonstrates desire. 23, at last, which is another way of saying, well, yeah. God puts him to sleep, takes out his rib, he kind of wakes up, right? Looking around, hello, there's a naked woman in the garden, yeah. That story, this part of the text is in here because God is trying to help us to understand that this idea of desiring one another in a sexual way was part of God's plan from the beginning. Eden is the first geographically identified place in all of Scripture. And in Hebrew, part of the meaning of Eden is pleasure. It's interesting, isn't it? Think of all the things that God could have named the garden. Think of all the things, right? This is the creator of the universe, the sovereign God. He got to choose what he was going to call it. And part of the significant meaning of this Hebrew word for Eden is pleasure. And there's a reason, because God created us as beings who can experience pleasure because it was part of his plan. It's part of his gift to us. Now, I think it's not a coincidence as it is that you move throughout the creation story. It says that the man and his wife were naked but felt no shame that we know that this all happened on the sixth day when he was finished with creation. And then it says on the seventh day, they rested, right? They, they were not allowed to do any work. We did a whole sermon on this, Born to Rest, in this series. Now, I just get this image of Adam and Eve waking up on their very first Sunday morning and Eve saying, hey, Adam, God says that we're not allowed to work in the garden today. What do you want to do? Now, we know what Adam's idea was. Watch, I'm just saying it brings a whole new meaning to this idea of church on Saturday. Just saying. <laughs> if you're married. We've got to make sure that we see Adam and Eve in the proper light to give ourselves permission to celebrate sexuality and sexual pleasure. But we also have to make sure that we see God in the proper light. God is eternal but that does not mean that he's old and outdated. See, for us in our human experience, those of us, right, 52, that have been around for a long time, the longer we're around, the more disconnected from popular culture we become. Right? One of the reasons that we have children is to make sure they can explain things to us as we get older about what people are saying, what things mean, how to work the technology in our homes. And if we're not careful because God's been around a long time, we'll see him as old and outdated. But there is a difference between being old and outdated and eternal. God is forever relevant. He's never disconnected from culture. There's nothing in this human experience that he cannot fully understand and appreciate. He's eternal. That's important because if, if you see him as old and outdated, then you will begin to look at what this book has to say about human sexuality as no longer being relevant to the human experience. But if we see him as eternal and we see his word as eternal, then we know that his instruction is forever relevant for all time and for all people. God is eternal. God is intentional. If you're not careful, you'll read the creation story as if God was surprised that Adam and Eve could have sex with each other. I did not know this was going to happen. No, no, no. When God was making a plan, because everything about this book tells us that God is completely intentional in all of his actions. He's completely intentional. 
Nothing is haphazard with him, which means that when he was creating Adam and Eve, he, he could have made so much of the human experience functional, but he made it beautiful. He could have made it so that it was just effectual, but he made it pleasurable. He could have made it so that food did not have flavor, it would just sustain us, but he didn't. Come on, praise the Lord. He made it so we could enjoy the experience. Why? Because this is part of who God is. Pleasure is part of the nature of his being, and we're created in his image, and this is one of the great gifts that he's given to us. Think about the world that we live in and the beauty that we see. Right? This was all part of God's plan and his design. He could have made it so that the sexual relationship between a man and a woman was just effectual for the purpose of procreation, but he did not. He made it pleasurable. God's intentional. He's eternal. And God is also strategic. Meaning that where sexuality is introduced to us in the scripture is introduced to us before Adam and Eve commit the first sin and not after. And that's important. And God did it in that order for a reason because he wanted us to understand that sexual pleasure and the sexual relationship between a man and a woman and a husband and a wife was part of the world when the world was perfect. This idea of sexual pleasure, this idea of entering into a sexual relationship with our spouse is not a product of a fallen world. There are few experiences that we can have that enable us to go back and experience something of Eden that Adam and Eve knew, and our sexual relationship with our spouse is one of them. I want to talk to you tonight about celibacy, but I think my definition is a little bit different than yours. Because you and I in society have been taught that celibacy is just a word that could describe describe us depending on our belief system and our value system on who we are before we're married. And I want to encourage you that celibacy continues on throughout your marriage. And then if you were to understand why God calls us to be celibate before we're married, then we begin to understand why celibacy doesn't end once we get married. So I believe that one of the ways that we begin to take responsibility for our sexual capacity and can step into the fullness of the enjoyment that God has for us is one, right, it begins, as we just talked about, is that sexual pleasure is part of God's plan for us. And the second one is that we find a depth of enjoyment through walking in celibacy through our entire life. Let me read this verse to you, James 1, 14 to 15. But each one is tempted when he is carried away, or she, right? This is a generic pronoun here. He is carried away and is enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This verse is important because it's teaching us about the power of desire. And what I would suggest to you is that desire does not begin here. It begins here. That if you have desires here, right, you think about your heart's desires, it's because something happened here first. There was an idea that generated, that connected to a need, and then all of a sudden chemicals began to get dumped into your bloodstream that creates a desire of your heart. It's why in Philippians 4.8 we find instruction like this where Paul writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, and admirable, and excellent, and praiseworthy, think on these things and these things alone. Why is that? Because Paul understands that if your thought life, if you have a filter... 
where you say, is it true and noble and right? Is it pure and lovely and admirable? Is it excellent and praiseworthy? If your thought life passes through that filter, then you're not going to have desires that are out of balance in your life. Can you imagine what would David had done if he had been on that rooftop and as he was looking out, as he happened to catch a glimpse of Bathsheba, if he had put that practice in place in his life? Are these thoughts that I'm about ready to have of this woman, is it, are they Are they true and noble and right? Are they pure and lovely and admirable? Are they excellent and praiseworthy? Think about every mistake that you've ever made in your life. If you had asked yourself those questions, how the outcome would have come out completely different. Every moment where you've found your mind racing down a path that it should not have, especially when it comes to sexual pleasure. We're responsible for the thoughts that we nurture. And we can be a victim of the thought that comes into our head, but at some point you've got to decide if you're going to nurture that thought. And if you nurture that thought, then you begin to create a desire, and James tells us where that can end up. There's a reason why in Ephesians 6, when Paul's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is talking about the full armor of God, there's a reason why it's called the helmet of salvation. Because if you're wearing the helmet of salvation, then the things that you think of are going to be true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. I call it the tenor P-L-A-E-P. You've got to find tricky ways when you're old to memorize stuff. Some of you need to memorize those eight words. The reason why you need to have dominion over your thought process, especially when it comes to your sexuality, is because of the pleasure center of your brain, the pleasure center of your brain as it relates to your sexual capacity and sexual pleasure is nothing more than Play-Doh. Now, we grew up as kids playing with Play-Doh, right? In the nursery, we got the Play-Doh factory back there. You put some batteries in it. You can make all kinds of things out of Play-Doh because it's malleable. It means you can shape it. How, all right, listen, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those that don't want their colors of Play-Doh to mix together and those that need them all separated, right? I'm like, do not mix up my Play-Doh colors. Who are, who are you with me? Who's with me, right? And who, are you, who was my color outside of the lines that all the Play-Doh ended up just being an ugly looking color, right? Yeah, like this dark gray because everything just mashes together, yeah? Stay away from my Play-Doh. You can't work in the nursery. Okay, just kidding. <laughs> so says Saber and Scotty, you oversee nursery. That's great. Oh, so good. This book right here by Doug Weiss, Sex, Men, and God, is one of the greatest books on human sexuality. I'm, now, it's written for men, but... What he talks about, the human brain, is true for women as well. Now, this book is specifically written for men that are coming out of sexual brokenness, and it gives lots of great practical ways to begin to find healing. So it's written a little bit like a textbook, but the content that's in here talking about brain chemistry as it relates to human sexuality, I'm telling you, was absolutely liberating for me about 15 years ago. A friend of mine at church gave it to me. I read it, Vanessa and I read it together, and and it, it, it it was one of those moments where, was like, how is it that I've been living this long and no one's talked to me about these things? And, and then I got frustrated, and then I got mad, 
Why is it that I've been around the church my whole life and no one's talked to me about these things? He talks in here about how your brain, especially the part that's connected to sexual pleasure, it's like Play-Doh. Now, if we gave everybody, we've done this with college students before, we give everybody a little bit of Play-Doh, and then we have them walk around the room and ask people to give them something so they can make an impression on it. And then you can say, oh yeah, that looks like that might be their student ID, or that looks like it might be a key. But then we said, what if, what if you went around and got an imprint from every person in this room, from everything that they had in their pockets, it would be indistinguishable. And he talks about this concept in this book. This is, this is what sexual experimentation with the secular world is telling people, which sets them up for failure, is that you don't need to pursue sexuality to see if you're sexually compatible, because if you keep doing that repeatedly, you're creating sexual experiences that your spouse is one day going to have to compete against. So the very thing that people are, the world is telling people that they should do to prepare for a sexual relationship is setting them up for failure. The reason why God says, wait until after you're married is because he understands how the brain works because he made it and how sexuality is connected to it. And so he says, don't have sexually arousing experiences until after you're married because your spouse is supposed to be the only one that comes in and makes an imprint on that part of your brain. So many people suffer from sexual dysfunction because they have a marred imprint. Virginity is a biblical concept, not because God is a prude, but because God is into pleasure. And he's trying to set you up for success. And so he says to you, wait. Not because it's some outdated concept from a God that doesn't understand the human experience. It's because God's saying, no, 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 no. I created you. And I want you to have the most incredible sex you could ever possibly have. And the way that you do that is by waiting, by each other offering an imprint to one another that only you share for the rest of your life. This is why celibacy doesn't stop once you get married. Celibacy continues once you get married through the concept of exclusivity. Celibacy is about exclusivity before your marriage in the sense that you're saving yourself exclusively for one person. Celibacy continues in your marriage so that once you get married, exclusivity governs your sexual life with your spouse, meaning that you only share it with your spouse, and no one else, not even yourself. So things that you watch on TV, series that, that, that are released today on television, right? It's, it's, it's pornographic, and, and Christians, right, and non-Christians alike are just filling their lives with these images that are sexually arousing. Every time you do that, you're creating an imprint on your brain that your spouse now has to compete with. And you're lessening the pleasure that you could be having with the person that you've given your life to. Things that you see, fantasies that you nurture, even physical touch creates an imprint on this part of your brain. And God says, hey, If you want to experience pleasure at the very depth, the perfect pleasure, then you wait for each other. Save yourself. And then if you've not waited, and if you're 
in here tonight and your story is one of a marred imprint, don't leave here feeling frustrated saying, Fred, I've already messed up. There's no turning back. That's the beauty of how God makes this part of your brain is that it can grow back to a place. For some of you, you're frustrated because you've not met the person that you want to marry for the rest of your life. And part of it is because God's trying to give you time for your sexual imprint to resurface. Now, he talks about it in here. The more sexually active you are, the more partners you have, the longer it takes for that part of your brain to recover. Understanding the biology of the human body and brain chemistry does not remove romance from marriage. It actually advances it. Let's talk about muscle memory. And here he talks about so much of the sexual dysfunction that people struggle with today. It's because they have muscle memory problems. Listen to this. Let me read this statement to you. Any arousing experiences begin patterns of muscle memory. You understand muscle memory. If you're a sports fan, they talk about it all the time. Any sport, right? The reason why repetition is part of any sport is, is because you're trying to create muscle memory. Your, your muscles have the ability to remember So let me give you an example. How about a teenager who repeatedly looks at pornography, is aroused, masturbates, reaches climax, and does this repeatedly throughout their adolescence? Not only are they making an impression on the imprint of their brain, they are teaching the sexual part of their body to be stimulated in a certain way. So now we live in a world where all of these people are being taught these terrible things from a secular society that you experiment to discover sexual compatibility, which we know creates a marred imprint. The science supports it, right? Even secular publications are coming out now with this type of, of research. And we also know, which they're coming out with too, is that there's also a muscle memory problem, that the sexual parts of your body are conditioned to respond to certain touches by certain people, which at the end of the day, you add all of that up. You create these barriers for your spouse that's impossible to overcome. So your sexuality is a responsibility. And celibacy is God's plan and idea because he's trying to set us up for sexual success. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. And the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. This is in the Bible. Some of you are like, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Yeah, it's because you should read it more. <laughs> the wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. This is what we're talking about right here. It's in the, it's in the Bible. Listen to what it says. It says, do not deprive each other of sexual relations. Unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourself more completely to prayer. Some guys in here are like, maybe we should pray more. <laughs> if that's what happens after. Listen to what it says. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What what's Paul saying to the church of Corinth? He's saying, hey, be in control of yourself. Understand there's a causal relationship between your actions and the consequences that follow. 
If you're going to experience the depth of sexual fulfillment that I believe that God wants us to have in this life, you've got to understand the concept of celibacy, and then you also must understand the concept of consecration. Matthew 6.33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added unto you. Now, that, there's a whole lot there in that verse, but one of them is Jesus trying to help us to understand that there are many different kinds of appetites that you and I have because we were created with them by God. Listen to this. Let me share this thought with you. Sometimes we feel hungry when all our body really wants is a glass of water. Dehydration is often mistaken for hunger. It's estimated that 75% of Americans go through life chronically dehydrated. Before you grab a handful of chips or other snack, try having a glass of water and see if that calms your hunger. What we learn in our physical body is also true in our spiritual life. It's something that I like to call appetite confusion. For some of you, your sexual appetite is running amok because you're spiritually and emotionally dehydrated. And because you have this lack here, it's, a, it's, it's, it's manifesting itself over here. It's one of the reasons why we talk about as a church is oftentimes when people have struggles with things that they're not supposed to be doing, when we first start talking with them, we don't talk a lot about stopping. We start a lot talking with them about starting. Because if you start doing the things you're supposed to do, you'll be less susceptible to the things that you should not if you're not married and you're of a dating age, then you should read the book by Dr. John Van Epp. We recommend this book over and over and over again. It's How to Avoid Falling in Love with a Jerk. And he talks about how people attach in an unhealthy way emotionally to people. When people come to us and say that they met someone, they want to get married, we say, you read this book and then we'll talk to you. Because people set forth patterns in their relationship, even that's going to end in marriage, even if they're doing the right things by, function, by, by walking in celibacy, but if they're not pursuing each other relationally at an emotional level and a spiritual level, then they're setting themselves up for failure because they're going to have a sexual appetite for one another that's trying to compensate for these things over here. And not only that, but if you go into a marriage spiritually and emotionally healthy, not only does it give you the right balance in your sexual appetite, but it makes your sexual experience even greater because of the emotional and the spiritual component that goes along with it. It's not just a physical function. Emotional dehydration. If you're in a dating relationship or you're engaged, then you've got to pursue emotional intimacy. There's intellectual intimacy, physical intimacy, yet non-sexual. Some, right, some guys are like, I did not know that there's physical intimacy that's non-sexual. Yes, there is. Maybe you should try it. Hold your wife's hand on a walk with no ulterior motives. There's activity-based Emotional connection by sharing time and space. There's what's called aspirational intimacy, which is sharing hopes and dreams. There's volitional intimacy, which is sharing dreams with one another. There's aesthetic intimacy, which is enjoying beauty, like watching a sunset. There's a reason why you feel connected when you do that. It's because you're sharing in the beauty of God's creation. That creates a sense of connection with you. 
There's verbal intimacy. Just having con- just talking with each other, even if it's small talk, creates a connection. There's crisis intimacy. There's recreational intimacy. There's a whole list. As a dating relationship, if you're in an engaged relationship, you want to pour all of your energy and efforts into emotional intimacy and spiritual intimacy, walking in celibacy. Then you're setting yourself, I'm telling you, for a life of breaking the pleasure barrier. Spiritual dehydration. If you don't know what that's about, then you're new to our church. Get one of those little green booklets back there. They're free. Go back to find some at the end of the services wearing a blue shirt and say, Fred said to give me one of those little green books, and they'll give it to you. We talk about 12 pathways here. Scripture, prayer, worship, fasting, accountability, relationship, gathering, reaching, generosity, stewardship, service, and rest. And we talk about how those things are the engine of your spiritual life. That was part of the worship wrap-up tonight. For some of you, you're rationing those things when you should be gorging on those things. You're rationing those things, and then you're gorging over here. Start gorging over here, and then all of a sudden, you'll find that all these other appetites that you have in your life will come into balance. It's part of what Jesus was saying. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added unto you. It's not just about provision. That verse is about balanced, living a balanced life. Matthew 4.4, Jesus told him when he was being tempted by the devil, The scripture says that people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Recognize your many appetites and that when one is neglected, you're vulnerable to the others. And we teach on fasting a couple of times a year here at our church. If you've never been on a physical fast, you again, get a copy of that book. It talks about this being one of our pathways. There's a great book by Dr. Elmer Towns, which we taught on not too long ago here, called Fasting for Spiritual Breakthrough. I believe that physical fasting and the neglect of physical fasting, meaning that I know you can fast all kinds of things. I get that. But if you do that and never fast food, I'm telling you that you're setting yourself up for struggle. Now, if you've got medical reasons for why you can't, then you've got to work with your doctor to figure out a plan that's safe for you. I'm not telling you to be unsafe. But for most people, they don't have medical restrictions for fasting. They just have eating issues with fasting. Because fasting means that you don't eat any food. If you can deny yourself food, even when you're desperately hungry, you will gain a sense of self-control over every other appetite in your life. And for some of you that struggle with areas of out of control, I, I, I guarantee you, 99.9% of you, if you struggle with self-control issues in any part of your life, emotional, intellectual, physical, whatever it is, I, 99.9% of you do not, do not have a regular regimen of fasting in your life. I guarantee it. Because one of the reasons why God calls us to it is teaching us self-governance. And your desire for food is one of the greatest desires that you have because it's connected to your survival instinct. If you can say to your body when it's hungry, when it hasn't eaten for one day or two days or three days, if you can say to your body, you're getting nothing. Imagine what you can say to the rest of your appetites. If you struggle with self-control, start fasting, and I'm telling you, you're going to break some ground. You're going to break some ground. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. One of the most romantic, sensual poems ever to be written 
was written in 965 B.C. by Solomon. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Song of Solomon and all the metaphors God could have chosen to describe our relationship with Christ. And he chooses to call us his bride. It is one of the most erotic writings that you're going to find. And it's in the Bible. It's when you get your kids and they're little, the first Bible, you just rip Song of Solomon right out of there and give them the rest of it and say, you can come talk to me when you're ready for the rest of it. If you're, let me just talk to parents for a minute. If you are a parent and you don't have a plan and a strategy for having a sexual conversation with your children, you're setting them up for failure. Because one of the reasons why he gave them to you is for you to give them clarity when it comes to sexuality. And if your parents failed you, then what I would say is don't fail them. And if you need help, if you need to know what kind of resources you get, we're, we're here to pass that on to you. There's an incredible book series by Concordia Publishing that you can get through christianbook.com that will walk you, your kids through a conversation about sexuality that starts when they're very little, that leads them all the way. And you might say, well, I don't know if I want to start with them. You need to start with them when they're very little just to talk about the concepts of privacy to, perfect, to per, protect them from people who are predators. You track it with me? This idea of having a sexual conversation with, with your children is, is, is multidimensional. And, and, and if you, and right, this is one of the greatest perpetuators of brokenness in life is, is that we tell ourselves, because I haven't done it right so far, I might as well not even try now. And that's a lie right out of the pit of hell. I don't care if your kids or teenagers start the conversation now. Because I guarantee you they're having that conversation with somebody and they should be having it with you. And the beginning of that conversation might be you apologizing and asking for your, your, your child's forgiveness and then engage that part of the journey of their life. I don't care if you've got children who are young adults. If you've never, if you've got kids that are grown and married and you never had a conversation with them about sexuality, I'm telling you, you should find a private moment and pull them aside and apologize and ask for their forgiveness. That alone, I'm telling you, is going to open up a place of influence in their life that you've never had. Our kids, they're not looking for us to be perfect, but they are looking for us to be authentic. So if you've made mistakes, acknowledge it and pick up and move forward from there. Stand with me. Father, I pray for people that are here tonight. I, I pray, God, even though we know that we're just scratching the surface when it comes to this idea of understanding our sexuality and having a sexual conversation, I do pray that that's part of the fruit that comes from this time together, that it's going to give people permission to begin to have a conversation. As husbands and wives, it's going to give them permission. As parents of their children, it's going to give them permission. For people that are here that are not married, it's going to give them permission to begin to set boundaries in place that maybe they've never set before. God, we know that this idea of sexual pleasure was your idea, it was your plan, and that we were born to enjoy. And we pray that we will always see your truth as a pathway to perfect liberty and the greatest measures of pleasure that are possible in this human experience. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.